Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 16. Thank you for being here. I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about the development of artistic finance, so if you want to get to the Steve Woods interview, skip ahead about five minutes. As of this release, we have been publishing for four full months. This is episode 16, but we've actually released 19 episodes with two Connecting Culture shows and a bonus episode with Sandy Chang discussing social justice. Now, none of this would have been possible without the behind-the-scenes team. My producing partner, Nicole Steimel, who decides our guest roster. If you know someone who would be great on the podcast, Nicole is the one to talk to. She ensures we include artists from various art forms and in various stages of their careers. Our producing consultant, Anne Nigrin Doherty, reviews each episode and helps me re-edit to a conversational flow. If you think I get off topic during the episodes, just know that if Anne didn't tell me where to cut, the episodes would be three hours long. Our graphics and website creator, Josh Cutler, who has given hours of time and effort and taken time away from his own projects. The composer of our music, Chang Liu. When I asked for an upbeat and exciting intro, Chang called me from his home in Vienna and spent two hours explaining that I needed cello music to match the timbre of my voice. <laughs> the newest member of our team, Drew Garrett, who edited the audio for this episode and will be editing future episodes. All these people have donated their time and talents. Slowly, we will grow and monetize the show and potentially be able to compensate them. But until then, I am indebted for the kindness and energy they continue to give. A special thanks to our guest hosts for our Connecting Cultures series, Ronnie Dutra in our Portuguese episode and Elena Natkina in our Russian episode. A lot of work goes into those episodes, including coordinating time zones, translating text, and of course, hours of editing audio in another language. It wouldn't be possible without the behind-the-scenes work of the guest hosts. A big thank you to all our guests for giving me their time. Artists aren't often keen to talk about money. It's a taboo topic, and for each artist that comes on the show, three other artists have declined to speak publicly. Those that have sat down and chatted understand the importance of the conversation. Every artist has had to make tough decisions, made mistakes, worked hard, and gotten lucky. I'm immensely grateful for the kindness of the guests who have been willing to share their experiences. And last, but not least, thank you to you, the listener. With each listen, you validate that the interviews are providing worthwhile information. Thank you for your engagement, for subscribing on YouTube and on your podcast app, and for leaving ratings and reviews. Every download gets us closer to reaching more people, closer to finding a sponsor, and being able to get ad revenue. Okay, we're almost to our interview with Steve Woods, but one final announcement. We now have a Patreon page. Visit artisticfinance.com for a link to our Patreon page, where you can get early access to episodes, bonus audio and video content, and chat with me behind the scenes. If you want to support the show and help cover our monthly fees and various expenses, this is a great way to do it. 
And if becoming a patron isn't your thing, we also have created a swag store if you want to support in a more capitalistic way. Visit artisticfinance.com to visit the shop or become a patron. Today's guest is lighting designer Steve Woods. He has designed at the Dallas Theater Center, Undermain Theater, and Kitchen Dog Theater. Regionally, he has designed at Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival, the Kennedy Center, and the Spoleto Festival. In New York, he has designed at Theater for a New Audience, the Joyce Theater, the York Theater Company, and Lincoln Center. His dance designs have been seen internationally in Mexico and across Europe. Since 1988, he has designed for the Jose Limon Dance Company. Currently, Steve Woods teaches in the MFA Stage Design Program at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. That has led him to head the Design Showcase East each spring in New York City. He also is a host of a podcast about lighting design called Light Talk with the Lumen Brothers. We recorded this back on May 13th, so it was earlier on during the COVID pandemic and before the Black Lives Matter protests had reignited. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Steve Woods, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Could you give us a two-minute recap of your career and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, You know, I went to uh, the University of Tennessee at Knoxville as an undergraduate. That was in the 70s. And at the time, that school was on the quarter system. So I found out pretty quickly, I guess by my sophomore year, moving into junior year, that I wanted to be in the theater. And no matter how good the school was and how exciting it was, I needed uh, some kind of professional experience. So getting back to that quarter system, I would go to school for two quarters and take two quarters off. So instead of four years, God, it took me almost seven years to graduate. But uh, during those times, I would be on campus, a job would open up, and I would simply not come back for winter term or spring term. That's how I got my first job. I mean, I took off and went to the Barter Theater for a year. Something happened to somebody. It's like the master carpenter, I don't know, had a stroke. And all of a sudden, I became the master carpenter. So I was an intern for one day. And uh, because I had been working in the scene shop at Clarence Brown Theater, I kind of knew my way around a table saw. I was promoted. And all of a sudden, I was the master carpenter. That's amazing. (laughs) So, yeah, I started out there. came back to school. And I was working there, mounted my own business. And Hartford Ballet came through. So their TD and their production manager were retiring uh, at the end of that season. They said, hey, you want a job? Uh, you, you pick, production manager or TD. So I went to uh, Hartford Ballet for a year. I was their technical director. Uh, I figured I could do that. I was a little worried about being production manager because uh, it was three, four, four national tours. Plus, we were taking a show to uh, the Netherlands and another show to Spain. So I thought, maybe I'm getting over my head here to be in charge of everything. So I started you know, learning very quickly about how the professional world works. And that led me to other opportunities, opportunities in television, opportunities in regional theater, opportunities in rock and roll. You know, it's uh, a series of uh, connected little steps. All of a sudden, you know, one door closes, another door opens, and you think, well, I haven't done that before. In fact, I just designed my first uh, kind of frou-frou salon. It's a salon and spa. Uh, and I'd never done that before, but I thought, I'll give it a try. 
It's one of those salons where you know you walk in, they give you a glass of champagne, and the haircut's one hundred and fifty dollars. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I, the architect had never done it either. So all of a sudden, we're both kind of muddling our way to designing the salon. You just never know where life's going to take you. I went to Southern Methodist University for grad school, and you were the head of the design program and the head of the lighting design program. And and that's how that's how I know you recently, but. When did you, uh, in your career, go to teaching? Because you also taught somewhere in Louisiana, maybe, before Southern Methodist? I was at Baton Rouge. I think you've, you met my daughter, right? Yes. Now she's all grown up now. She came, she came and saw a design of mine, Alice Underground, and she hated it. So, so I met your daughter. <laughs> you, know, you know, when she was a, a little squirt, she would come to class, and she would look at the design uh, layouts by the students. And uh, she would look at them and smile and nod if she liked them. And if she didn't like them, she would make a face and grunt. And it was really disconcerting for the students that she grunted at. Uh, But now she's off to the University of British Columbia doing her master's work up there. But that's when I decided, when I was at Baton Rouge teaching, I thought, I'm going to leave. And I thought, I'm not going to raise a daughter in Louisiana. I'm going to retire and become a gentleman farmer. And uh, SMU came headhunting. So after 10, after 10 years at Baton Rouge, we moved across uh, the river and came over to Dallas. And I've been here 21 years, I guess. But before that, um, I was working the road. I was touring. I was um, going on the road around the country, around the world. I was working uh, and still am with the Lamone Dance Company, with Stuttgart Ballet, with the National Ballet. I kind of also wanted to slow down a little bit. I was on the road 32 to 40 weeks out of the year, you know, and I just had gotten married. uh, And I thought, what's the point of being married if you're not going to be with your spouse? So I, you know, I kind of had teaching in the back of my head somewhere this could be interesting. And so I just explored that, that avenue and kind of fell in love with it. It's also given me an opportunity to really cherry pick the projects I want to work on. Yeah. How how old were you when you did graduate college? And then how old were you when you uh, started teaching? Let me think. I got my union card while I was still an undergraduate. Then I guess I got married when I was about 30, maybe. And I started teaching when I was 32. And those 10 years at Baton Rouge taught me how to teach. That kind of prepared me for the step toward SMU. Okay, so about your union card, you're talking about USA 829? In undergrad, I had I, I got my union card, and then uh, shortly thereafter, or my USA card, and then shortly thereafter, I joined two different IA locals also. So I, I've slowly stepped back from the IA, and I've actually stepped back from United Scenic Artists. I know you as a lighting designer. Did you go in in the lighting design department or scenic department, or was did it not matter at that point? There used to be all categories which was, I can't imagine <laughs> coming in as an all-categories designer. I'm, my hat's off to anyone who ever did that. I came in as a lighting designer. Okay. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out, because you said you were TD, uh, like how soon did you go into lighting and then sort of stick with lighting? Well, what happened was I went to uh, school, and I needed money. I needed uh, some type of part-time job, and the university had two job openings. Uh, I came in as an English literature major, by the way. Uh, <laughs> they, came, they had two job openings. One was a short order cook at the student union, and the other was working in the scene shop at the theater department. And I thought, working in the scene shop sounds a whole lot better. You know, I had done some uh, theater in high school, and I liked it. I was always interested in lighting, but they didn't have a lighting position open. 
They had a junior carpenter third class position open. So I worked in the scene shop. So it gave me a foot in the door with professional companies. Uh, you know, I, I did the TD thing very, very short time. I was TD at Hartford Ballet and um, a master carpenter at the Barter. And then by the third year, I was working as a lighting designer. I was working as a, uh, a happy-go-lucky little stagehand worker bee at Opryland USA, which was a theme park. The thing about Opryland was they also were home to uh, Opryland Productions. And Opryland Productions was their television wing. And every, anytime I wasn't doing like my theme park show, I was over there hanging out in the studios watching the designers work. And they were doing things like the Dolly Parton show and Johnny Cash show. And they were shooting episodes of the Midnight Special. They were doing most of the remote work for Wide World of Sports. So I really started learning about television at that time. And there was that whole sense of uh, Nashville scenery the look of Nashville television, the look of Nashville lighting. Yeah. I mean, even now, I mean, maybe it's not Opryland. Maybe that doesn't exist anymore. But like if you watch the CMA Awards, there's a lot going on in Nashville. Like it's a whole beast of its own. Okay. Like five years ago-ish, you started a podcast, Light Talk with the Lumen Brothers. <laughs> oh, man. We're, you know, we started out, we, you know, we thought, is anyone going to listen to this? And the first episode, somehow 50 people found us. And now, you know, we're kicking around four to 6,000 downloads an episode. We're in 123 countries. That's amazing. We even had swag last year at LDI. We were giving out coffee mugs. So, I mean, we, <laughs> we have, we have a arrived. Um, okay, so now I want to get to know your creative personality a little bit. Um, what is your favorite live event to view as an audience member? I'm still torn between uh, dance and rock and roll, but, but I think dance. I think that is my favorite art form. There's just a purity to it. You can bring anything you want to to it as an audience member. There's just no preconceived ideas. I, I asked the Lamone once about, um, about what the piece was about, and the answer was 28 minutes. <laughs> it's, it's about 28 minutes. <laughs> so it was interesting. You know, there's just no preconceived ideas stuck on it. Show me, bring me your ideas. Show me how you interact with the dancers. Show me how you would help how you, how you me tell this story. Do you like a story like Nutcracker or do you want some sort of, you know, untitled piece that you have no idea what's going on and you just watch a dancer out there? What's, what's your preference? I'm just watching a dancer out there, you know, when they're doing Nutcracker. So it, does, it doesn't have to be a story ballet. I just like the sense of the movement of the human being in the space and the human being is the story. If you go to a rock and roll concert, and I'm, I'm not alone in this, or if you go to the theater and all of a sudden there's a lot of lights and they're moving and they're flashing and there's projection going on everywhere, all of a sudden the human being gets lost on the stage. And it's, it's all of a sudden the human being's not the story anymore. So I, I think in dance, uh, we certainly have the ability to do spectacular things, but I really like just the story of that human being on stage and seeing them and relating to them and listening to their breath and hearing the footfall I just love all that. I love it. Yeah, I love it. Down to the root of storytelling. 
what is a piece of art that you love? You know, uh, I really like the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. Me too. It's so good. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. There you go. So you just wander around. You see the, the different things that he did over his lifetime. And you go from these kind of Japanese painting looking things to what we think are Van Gogh to the potato eaters, that kind of grotesque. Yes. I, it's, a, it's a great place. It's so good. And what I love about it is he's deified there. Because they have like paintbrushes of his and a palette of his and some leftover paint. So there's all these little like, you know, relics. Ears in a jar. (laughs) Um, And then they also have it where where they have like he would reuse his paintings or his his canvas. So like there's the painting on the one side and you're like, wow, this is amazing. And you walk around to the back of it and it's this other amazing painting. We do the same thing. I'm in trouble here. Let's get some Roscoe. Uh, 90 and stick it over there. It always works from stage left. And yeah, put put that tree gobo on stage right. I guess it'll work. <laughs> oh, yeah. So if anybody finds themselves in Amsterdam, that museum is good and it's the perfect size. You can spend four hours there and you feel like you spent time at all the paintings. Okay. Um, when you're working on a show and lighting something, designing something, where do you pull inspiration from? I pull it from the script. I pull it from the script. If it's not in the script, it's not in the play. I go there, and over the last you know, 15 years, I have been really concentrating on doing new work and working with playwrights and premiere work, new drama. And that has been great because I'm working with the playwright. I've learned a lot from watching playwrights. Uh, a lot of them just sit there and close their eyes, and they, they hear the words. I, I try to go to all this stuff and just hear the language of the play and the rhythm of it and the story that's being told. And then I try to find my way into it with the other designers and the director. How do we create this visual landscape? You know, I don't think of myself as a lighting designer. I think of myself as a visual artist. Yeah. What kind of music do you listen to? Uh, everything. I'm, I'm a Rolling Stones fan, a Talking Heads fan, Neil Young, uh, Johnny Cash, Lou Reed, I mean, it's all there. And, you know, I'm, I'm also a big fan of Keith, uh, Keith Jarrett, of Oregon, whatever, whatever's kind of happening. All right. Um, if you have time, what are some of your hobbies? Man, I, I don't have any hobbies anymore. I, I guess the closest thing I have to a hobby is photography. And I, I, I enjoy looking at photographs and I enjoy taking photographs. Do you, do you have an Instagram account? I do. Have I ever posted anything? No. <laughs> I guess I should. I mean, what's the point of photography? Just for you to enjoy? What, what if I want to enjoy your photography? Well, I think the point of photography for a lighting designer is learning about angle and intensity and focus, primary focus and secondary focus, balance. I think there's all kinds of things. And, you know, and I, I, just, I just love looking at things around me and seeing how they look in different light. And composition, huge. These are all great things for lighting designers to study. Yeah. You are truly a visual designer. Okay, so that was your creative personality. Now let's get to know your financial personality. Um, Could you describe your demographics? And if you don't want to say your age, you can just say a generation that you identify with. I'm I'm at level 64. (laughs) So I'm I'm trying to get to level 100. (laughs) I don't know if I'll make it. Uh, But I'm a proud, proud uh, child of immigrants. I'm a a Scottish Highlander who grew up in Appalachia in in, uh, poverty and uh, just working class family, blue collar farmers. That's me. Yes, I identify as a male, married to the same old ball and chain after 35 years, still there. 
Yeah, she's glaring at me from the kitchen right now. I heard. I heard. Oh, good. You can keep that in the recording. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Moving on from that, you know. Um, are you like a stereotypical artist in that are you, you're bad with money or are you a money wizard? Man, I'm both. I think what happens is... Um, I mean, at least for me, growing up on a farm, growing up in Appalachia, my parents um, had high school educations. They certainly were fine and they certainly understood the value of a dollar and they were never in debt. But they also didn't have the skill set or the financial understanding to say, this is what you should be doing. This, let's, let's talk about the stock market. Let's talk about retirement. Let's talk about insurance. These are things that, you know, retirement came from working down at the plant insurance was connected with the plant. You know, I was I was never bad with money. I, w- I was like every other college student. I got some credit card debt that was just stupid when I was in my 20s and got rid of that. And then um, you start kind of self-educating. I mean, you know, you can go down and, and, and uh, you don't even have to buy it. You can go to the library, uh, financial planning for dummies, and just start there. Yeah. And, and now it's on the internet. I mean, that's how I learned. I mean, I, I had a subscription to Money Magazine a long, long time ago. I did too. I did too. But now that would be absurd to get an actual subscription, I think. <laughs> well, now you look at, you know, you look at that and you go, if you've got $30,000 that you need to invest, let's do this right now. You know, not many people who are starting on our business have 30000 to invest. They might have fifty, <laughs> But Money Magazine is a little, a, a little jaded toward who their clientele is. <laughs> Wise of them. Um, so are you a saver or a spender? I think I'm a saver. You know, listen, we just we just remodeled our kitchen. So yeah, there was some spending going on there, but we waited until the kitchen was on its last leg and was just saying, come on, just remodel me or burn the house down. <laughs> so I mean, if, I, if, if we really see something that we really, really want, then we're, we're kind of, uh, we think about it a little bit, but we go out and buy it. You know, like I thought our couch after 30 years was just fine. My wife didn't. She wanted a new one. So we went and got a couch. You know, so there's that bachelor kind of thing about you. And I think, yeah, I could, I've only had those jeans for 15 years. I'll keep wearing them. The, the, the bell bottoms will come back in fashion. But I think savings, you know, it's, I'm trying to instill that in my daughter now is the idea of savings. I was reading that if you have $5,000, your child should invest that 5000 in an index fund when they are, I think, 20 is the magic number. And then the next year, uh, invest another 5000 And then in third year, invest another 5000 which I know sounds like a lot of money. But 15000 invested when you're 20, 21, and 22, by the time you're 65 with a normal rate of return is a million dollars, you've got 45 years of dollar cost averaging coming along there. So I think um, savings and investing is a lot easier than most people think it is. Okay, I want everybody to stop the podcast, rewind one minute and listen to that again until it sinks in because I I think that is so important. One of the reasons when I was 21, 22, I opened a Roth IRA and I started putting money in it. It's because I read in my money magazine, if at age 18, you started saving like $5 a week, that by the time you were 60, you would have a million dollars. Or it was something really simple there. And it probably comes out to like 5000 a year starting at 18 or 20. But the reality is if you start early, it's much simpler and much easier to achieve things because like you're saying, compound interest. Are you risk averse or a risk taker? No, man, I'm, I'm in Vegas. I go all in. I think a risk taker. Uh, but, 
you know, you don't have to be a risk taker. You can invest in an index fund. And I, I don't want to bring up politics, but uh, <laughs> if that man had taken his $200 million inheritance and invested in, a, in an index fund from Fidelity, I mean, he'd be like one of the richest people on the planet. Uh, you know, index funds, you don't, there's no risk there. Just go with the S&P. Okay. What did your finances look like right when you started your career? Okay. I, I remember this vividly. I, I was in college. I was working two jobs. And I remember just thinking, if I can, if I can just make $500 a week, what a rich person I would be. All of my problems would be solved if I just made $500 a week. I didn't think about it. I thought I thought I didn't think about finance and if I were if I was well off or not well off, I thought about the enjoyment I was getting from the jobs I was taking. I was living that gypsy life going to either the summer season or the fall winter season or going on tour. Um, you know, I had food, I had a, a car, I had a warm place to live. Uh, so I wasn't too worried. Um, as I got older, you know, uh, certainly uh, by the time I'd gotten married, I thought, ah, I've got to grow and be an adult now. So I really started saving. And uh, I set aside 30% of my salary every month and uh, because I want that money there for them in retirement or if I pass away. I just want that money set aside. So I have done that for the last 35 years. It's just... It seems like, well, what happened to your raise? Well, I put more of it into the bank to set it aside for us for the future. That's amazing. Everybody should pause and rewind that again, too. Because <laughs> 30, because like when I was uh, 18-ish, it was like save 10% of your income, 10, 10 to 15. And then a few years later, it was like 15, 20 if you can. And now it's like 20 is sort of what you should set. And, and it just sort of keeps getting higher just because of how everything works out. But 30%, I mean, I think you are, I think that's the highest amount that anybody I know sets aside. You know, my master plan is uh, when I actually have to take Social Security, I'm going to take that Social Security and whatever that amount is, I'm going to look at my paycheck and deduct that same amount and save that either just in a straight savings account or max out completely what my uh, IRA can be. So I can kind of I can kind of double dip there for a few years. All right. Well, you sound you're like you're very uh, good with money to me. <laughs> Do you, has there been any events in your life that affected how you view money? Yeah, I, I think about that. I think about the three times we had Republican presidents who crashed the market and that <laughs> set me back, and it makes me mad. You know, <laughs> I want to go shake my fist at the White House. What are you, What are you guys thinking? Wait, wait, was that eighty seven Bush Senior? Oh, we we had we had Reaganomics, we had Bush Senior, we had Bush Junior, and, and we have uh, a current situation right now. So yeah, I look at that. I'm going along. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, this is great. This is great. What just happened? The market fell twenty three percent. But the thing about you know. That's the thing, though, getting back to dollar cost averaging, you're, you're buying a lot of stock when it's low and you're not buying very much stock when it's high. So, I mean, I know that it's going to come back. I'm not worried about that. Now, if I were 80, you know, I'd be panicked right right now. But, you know, I'm not going I'm not planning on retiring for at least 10 years. And that's plenty of time for any losses to have come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Have you had any health challenges that affected money in your life? I, got, I became really sick when you were in school. 
I, my eyes were really opened uh, to how I view insurance. I'm convinced uh, insurance is a scam, um, and sadly we all need it. Uh, though I'm, I don't support uh, Mr. Sanders, he does have a point. I was in the hospital, and my insurance bill for like eight or nine days was almost $90,000. Or a hospital bill was almost $90,000. And because I had insurance, I had to pay $2,000. Happy, happy end to that story. And then I got a letter from the hospital. Hospital said, your bill's $90,000. Uh, you paid $2,000. Good, thank you. And then I kept reading down, and it said, agreed upon settlement with the insurance company, $39,000. And so the insurance, so I would have had to pay 90000 if I didn't have insurance, but here's the insurance company settled it for 39000 Come on. I mean, I, that opened my eye up when they say that people are $500 away, a $500 repair bill away from being in trouble. I mean, my heart goes out to people who don't have insurance, and it's so darn expensive. I, I feel like I could devote an entire episode to that, too, just medical. Well, it means now that, um, you know, all Money Magazine, <laughs> you've, you've really got to set aside, and it's not easy to hear, but you've got to set aside three or four months' worth of bills as far as cash in the bank. You know, if you have a $2,000 monthly uh, outgoing of cash, you need about 8000 in the bank. And, you know, that's what we've tried to do. And it's not easy because, you know, it's just not easy to do that. You read, okay, good financial steps to take. And rainy day fund is always there, but also saving for retirement is always there. And so when I started out, I saved for retirement before I did the rainy day fund. Same here. Even though the advice, the advice says do the rainy day fund first. But I thought, no, 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 that's such a large amount like $8,000. That was such a large amount. I was like, there's no way it'll be years before I get to 8,000. So I'm going to start saving for retirement. Not saying there's right or wrong. The rainy day fund in theory is the right way, but I chose what was what I could do. Exactly. And I think that's what anybody has to do is be sensible. I mean, these these people who write these articles uh, make it sound so simple. You want to be a millionaire? Well, get a million dollars. Is that all I had to do? Do you think about money often, a.k.a. do you worry about it on a daily basis? I used to. Once you have a child, then you start realizing that your behavior is how your child starts learning to act. So if you're running around worried about money all the time, then all you're going to do is teach your child to be worried all the the time. Or or if you're like me, when you're driving down the road with your two-year-old and a guy cuts you off, and you hear the voice in the back seat in the uh, chair, a little, you know, strap-in chair the babies wear, you hear that little voice going, screw you, screw you, then you realize you've been a bad role model for your two-year-old, so you clean your language up pretty fast, too. You know, I, I worry about my daughter's education and life there, but she got a scholarship at SMU, and now she's got a full scholarship at uh, uh, British Columbia. So, you know, those are the big money worries right now, is making sure she can get through school without incurring hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of debt. Oh, side, side question, because we've touched on that before in this podcast. Did you have any student debt when you started? Oh, man, that is so sweet a question. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> that, let me explain something to you. Back, back when uh, Sophocles and I were in school, uh, you could do a summer construction job and you had more than enough money to go to college. There's a reason uh, community colleges are on the rise. You can go there, get a good education, 
And then you go to that expensive school for two years and you get that final diploma. So no, I had no student debt at all. I, I, I got out of college with no debt on the graduate and the undergraduate level. When you have excess money, where do you put it? I think we have four bank accounts. And we have one, which is our rainy day fund. And we have one that is simply for paying bills. We have one for uh, our daughter's college fund. Actually, we have two more. We have my checking account and my wife's checking account. So we, we simply have five or six cookie jars, and we put money in there uh, and just put it into those accounts and say, it's in the college fund. No, I'm not going to go out and buy Xbox with it. That's great. Throughout your life, have you used a budget? Uh, yes. You know, uh, geez, you know, when my dad started working, I think minimum wage was $1.65 an hour, and that wasn't unusual. Um, but yes, I, I learned budgeting is an important thing. I think that's the, maybe that's a problem. Uh, it's changed a little bit. I also teach a business aspects course at the university. And what I found was, oh, the average college student, according to Money Magazine, uh, has 12 credit cards. They, and you don't, they, I'm not saying they're using them or they're maxed out. But, but how many credit card applications do you get a week? How many things in the mail do you get like, hey, Ethan, you have such good credit. We want to give you an $80,000 signature loan. Um, I mean, th that just overwhelms us. I don't know. Go into any department store. You, you want to buy that pair of shoes? We'll give you 10% off if you'll sign up for our credit card. Oh, really? Great. 10% off. And, and what's the interest rate on your credit card? Did you just say 27%? No, no, I don't think I'll do that. But it's very tempting. If you've got a credit card in your pocket and you want that whatever, that widget for $200, you think, well, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll do this. But if you're actually taking that $200 out of your wallet, you slow down and think, do I really want to do this? Or would I rather have the 200 in my wallet? So we have gotten brainwashed to think that somehow credit cards are free money. What, what has been a great financial decision that you've made? To increase the amount of money that I put into my retirement accounts and funding every year. Every year, I try to raise it 3%. And that's 2% in my retirement and 1%, well, 2% in a regular uh, 401 and then 1% uh, in a Roth account. And I look at that Roth as emergency money because I've already paid taxes on it. So that's the best decision. That's the best decision is just to go slow. You know, because you know, you're right. You said it a minute ago. I, I, you, you couldn't see yourself doing eight thousand dollars, but you could see yourself putting a little bit of money away every month. The best decision anyone can make is to put a little money away every month. Right. What has been a bad financial decision that you've made? When I was in college, getting in credit card debt and not calling the credit card company and say saying I'm in over my head. You know, and, and you know, I owe you a thousand dollars, which you know people today would kind of laugh at. But at the time, I mean, that was a lot of money. And so I'm in over my head. I don't know what to do. And what you would find out is they would have said, well, let's change your monthly payment. Let, let, you know, I think people don't realize that credit card companies will work with them and solve their problems. The worst thing you can do is pretend it's going to go away or don't reach out for help. Now that I'm older and wiser, maybe even a school counselor could have helped counsel me on this or at least pointed me in a direction to help me figure out finances. So that was kind of a mistake, the mistake of being stupid and naive and just not understanding how the world works and hope, hoping somehow it's all going to get better. 
I can just man my way through it. Every time you get a paycheck, is that going to Steve Woods, the person, or do you have any sort of entity LLC structure set up? No, I do not have an LLC set up. I've looked at that and it didn't make sense for me. I talked to my accountant about that. And, uh, you know, a lot of my friends use TurboTax, but I've, I've always, uh, once I had a little bit of money, I always used an accountant and it, it didn't bother me one bit. Fantastic. I assume back then you were on 1099 income mostly. Yes. Now are you mostly W-2? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and actually somebody asked me for clarification because I realized that people who are not in the arts listen to this podcast and somebody said, well, we didn't know what W-2 versus 1099 income was. Like, we, why did you ask that question? And it just never dawned on me that somebody would not know the difference between those two. Welcome to be a migrant worker. You know, I'd much rather be a W-2 worker. I'd much rather the theater take out taxes and everything for me than have to do it myself. What, what I do, I don't know. I don't know what the rule of thumb is, but I've always been pretty comfortable. So if I'm, if I'm being an independent contractor, I take that check and I deduct 30% from it. So, and that's the part I set aside for future tax payment. And just, just I'm just going to say it, W-2 income is where your employer takes out the taxes and pays them before giving you the money. 1099 income is where you just get the paycheck and later you are responsible at tax time to pay the taxes on that income. Just saying it. These next two questions might be one and the same. So actually, I'm going to, I'm going to just, it's, it's do you invest and how? And then the next question is, what does your retirement plan look like? I don't know if those two things are connected for you. I guess they're connected. I mean, I'm just in mutual funds right now. Well, so I'm just going to break down your retirement savings. So from what I understand, from what we've already talked about, I assume you have a 401k through Southern Methodist University where you teach? Yes. Okay. So you have a 401k there. You've mentioned a Roth IRA. Mm -hmm. Do you have a traditional IRA? Yes. Uh, any annuity or pension or life insurance, something like that? I have uh, a ter- uh, not a term. What is it called? Whole life. I have a whole life insurance uh, package, and that takes care of. Uh, I just did a renovation on the house, so with that renovation, I did a uh, uh, what's it called? A personal, not a personal loan, a line of credit. So I did. Uh, a whole life against that line of credit. If I die tomorrow, then the money that I've taken out of my line of credit will be replaced by my insurance company. So my family doesn't have to worry about that. Um, And then on top of that, I I carry another million dollar policy. Okay. I I don't know how life insurance necessarily works. Is that that when you die, die, your family? (laughs) You die in the... I mean, oh, oh, hang on. Let me tell them I'm still alive. Give me that life insurance. I made it another day. So there's two types, right? There's accidental death. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's not bad. I mean, I'm living in Dallas, Texas. You know, there's I-75 here, which is a death trap. So you never know when you're going to get killed on I-75. So but, but you ha- that's accidental death. Um, and those are usually very, 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 very cheap. And then uh, my, uh, my life policy uh, becomes ridiculously expensive when I hit 70. So you'll stop paying it at 70, you think? Oh, absolutely. Because it goes from something, it goes from like a really reasonable cost to a thousand a month. It goes, it just goes, it's just unbelievable because you're about to die. Right. <laughs> so they don't want to pay you. <laughs> oh, and then I set up, uh, SMU offered another plan healthcare supplement plan. I put $50 a month into that and they put $100 a month into that. Um, it can only be used for medical expenses. 
And if you don't use that, it goes back to the university. Every year? It goes back every year? No, it goes back when your beneficiary dies. Uh, you can, anything that's medical. So I retire. Right now, I think I've got 35000 in that. And uh, they started a few years ago. So I can take that money anytime I want to and buy medicine, have surgery. And then it, but it, it's in stocks and bonds, et cetera, growing. Yes. And then when, when, when that principal and their beneficiary die, if you've got $10,000 in it, it goes right back to the university. That's how they keep building the fund. It's not, it's not transferable to my children. Okay. Okay. So then out of your, aside from your 401ks, IRAs, life insurance, health savings account, do you have a brokerage account? Like, do you invest in anything else, real estate or anything like that? No, no. I, I hold land and property, but I don't, I don't actually have an, what is it, REIT? So I don't do that. So I just have property. Wait, can I, can I ask more questions about the property? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me because if you look on like how to be good with money or how to make money, like, and if you want to get rich in the world, real estate comes into the, the game at some point. So it, it, you, you just buy and hold land? Are you buying it with other mm-hmm. people? Just buy and hold. And is it like a cattle ranch somewhere? Or is it a developmental land for a office building or something? Well, it started out as just plain old scrub land. Um, and what's happened is uh, the community is growing up around it. It was, it was a place that I thought would develop. And 20 years later, you know, uh, I was buying at 1,000 an acre. And now it's at 36,000 an acre. And you're just, you're just holding that until you pass away and somebody can sell it. Yep. Amazing. What's the, how many acres do you have? Five. Okay. And, uh, oh, taxes. What's the taxes on that? God, it is. Let me think. It's a burden. It's uh, $98 a year. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Okay, that's really cool. Yeah, it's in rural Tennessee. So it's $98 a year. It's unbelievably. I mean, it's like a gift. Send us our $98. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here's... Here's a hundred. How important has your personal support system been to you? And how important has your professional network been to you? Personal uh, support system's been very important. I mean, uh, my wife is, is a huge uh, help. And certainly our daughter is, uh, you know, my biggest fan. So that kind of unconditional support is very important. As far as my professional support system, you know, I was thinking about that. And really, my support system has been directors and writers. Because I never really assisted. So that design world, I came in, I guess, through a side door. That's been really important to have that kind of creative feedback, particularly from writers, as we work on new works together uh, and explore an idea has been has been pretty solid. And I've worked with some good people over the years. It's just been a a nice big adventure for, you know, 30, 35 years. That's awesome. Um, how, How much of your success has been hard work versus luck? Well, I mean, there's definitely luck involved. There's there's no doubt about that. You also have to have the chops to back it up. I mean, you can think. I mean, think about your own career. You're a talented designer, but you have gone out and made opportunity for yourself. You have talked to people. You have gone to. I'm sure you've gone to visit designers or see their work when you didn't feel like doing it. You're, you're small. We are both small business owners, and if we don't promote our business then we're not going to get any work unless we're just, you know, if we're just sitting back waiting for someone to knock on our door, it's not going to happen. So I think you have to be social. I think you have to pound the street 
And I think you have to take opportunity. Why don't a majority of artists have any savings or retirement savings? Because, because no one's ever taught them uh, to think about that. And also there is, there is this uh, dirty little secret in our industry uh, that I don't know why it keeps per- being perpetuated is that we don't make money. We're like doing it for fun or, oh, you're a lighting designer. What do you really do for a living? <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm a lighting designer and I make money and I charge people for it. And, but we are kind of taught, I don't know, to not ask about money. Uh, it's dirty. You know, I prefer an agent to negotiate uh, a salary rather than me. But again, I'm a small businessman. I think until universities start teaching their students that they are business owners, they're never going to think about it that way. And they're just going to be great. Well, they, you know, they take a job for a thousand dollars and then they don't realize they've got $800 of cost connected to that job. Yeah. Do you think for students going into college now, is this a good time to be studying theater? This has nothing to do with, with COVID-19. I think the question is, is there a career in the arts? And I would say, yes, there is. As surely as there's a career in business or in medicine or in education. Well, I have a friend who's an investment banker and he's really rich. I mean, really rich. And he said, uh, uh, you know, I look back over my life and I've made some bad decisions. And one of my decisions was becoming super rich while my two daughters were growing up and I really don't know who they are. And I thought, man, that is a, you know, that's a hard statement. He said, I wish I'd been around the house more when they were there. But I think you have to do a career that you feel a passion about and an interest in and a real need to do it. And you stick with it. And so if you want a career in the theater, yeah, now's a good time to be in the theater. Uh, I'll, I'll ask this through a COVID-19 lens, but answer it however you want. You're the head of Design Showcase East, is that right? That, that's right. And, um, and, and maybe also explain a little bit what, what exactly that is, because I know there's like a number of schools involved with that. But this year you had to go virtual with the, that. And I'm just wondering if you can sort of tell us about that. Well, there, there are two big showcases. There's UCLA's Design Showcase West, and there's the Meadows School of the Arts Design Showcase East. And students from different universities, um, you know, if they're really interested in going to L.A., they kind of head toward Design Showcase West. And if they're interested in working in the New York City market, they kind of head toward Design Showcase East. And then there's the big showcase up at Northwestern. Uh, University of Maryland has one in Washington, D.C. But these showcases are meant to be opportunities for students to network and present their work to professionals in the industry. So it's generally one day and an evening. And uh, we send out invitations for Showcase East. And people come by. We're at the Alvin Ailey Studios. And they see the work of 30, 35 students. Um, This year, we, we recognized it. Uh, even I mean, even before it became obvious, we started realizing in February this was going to be reckless to try to pretend there was going to be a showcase. I mean, we would have been shut down by the city of New York. But in February, we said, this is kind of reckless. And we decided to pull the plug on that. Uh, what I did was I reached out to a couple other schools. Uh, I talked to Kip Marsh up at Brooklyn College, uh, Robert Perry at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, Kerakoff at uh, 
uh, University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and of course, Claudia Stevens at SMU. And we kind of formed our little committee, our little tribe, and we started thinking about how can we have a showcase. And, you know, the obvious obvious answer was Zoom. We'll, we'll present this in a virtual world. So we had 20 universities that participated, 102 students. We set up um, uh, portfolios that could be viewed at the Design Showcase East website. We set up uh, sign-up sheets. So if you wanted to see a student, you could simply log on to that sign-up sheet, and there were different times. We held normally our events one day. We spread this over three days. We enter, we um, threw in keynote speakers each day. But we tried to put together this showcase in which people could present their work and talk with industry professionals for about a 30-minute interview. We wound up, as I say, with 102 students, 650 interviews. We had 6,000 hits on the website, the viewings of the portfolios. So I mean, there, there were things that worked about it. I would have liked to have seen more interviews. Uh, we, we got a lot of praise, and we also got a lot of really good criticism. And const- I mean, constructive criticism. Had you thought about doing this? Maybe if you did this, if you tweaked it that way. So if we have to do this again in 2021, I think we can make it even better. I think we have, we have really got the, the foundation now on how to do this distance portfolio shoring. You know, one of the students who showed work at Design Showcase East from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, she had graduated, as they all had, but she had gone home to England. She was zooming in from England to show her work to New York designers and designers from L.A. Uh, so that, that, that was, a you know, we, just, we have figured out the distance thing. That's fantastic. You're hoping that next year it'll be in person in New York City. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's nothing like meeting that person eye to eye, shaking their hand, touching the work, looking at it. But also this has been a, a bit of an eye opener for us. You know, what, what do we do with those students who may not have the funds to get to New York? or the funds to get to LA. How about that student from Texas who just doesn't quite have enough money? He or she still wants a career in New York and they've saved their thousand dollars, let's say, to get their move done to New York. But can they really afford to come to New York for five or $600 when you think about a plane ticket and an airfare or a plane ticket and a hotel room, then go home and still move to New York in two weeks? If we can make this affordable and obtainable for more people to reach out and get their work critiqued, uh, we're going to. So we might do a hybrid uh, showcase next year. Yeah, I didn't think about it because my original thought was, oh, maybe there can be a scholarship fund set up to sort of help people get there. But yes, the, also incorporating the virtual would be helpful for, for people who where money's an issue. Yeah, we've talked about that for a long time, trying to put together a scholarship fund to do this. Maybe this is, maybe now we realize we have to. Okay, and then just say people are listening to this podcast in a year or two <laughs> and so they should just Google or look, go online and look up Design Showcase East to get the details. Design Showcase East has a website up. You can go there and you can find out about the origins of Design Showcase East. If you want to see who the students were who participated this year, all of their websites and portfolios are online and active through December. In January is when we'll start putting new people up. There's also information about how to participate or how your school can participate is there also. Amazing. Okay, so now with the state of the economy being how it is, uh, and many theater students moving to New York or big cities to pursue their careers, do you think right now is a good time for people to still move to New York or L.A., or should they try to do something else for a while? Honestly, I don't know. 
when it is safe to travel, when it is safe to relocate, you have to consider living in L.A. or Chicago or New York. Um, I think you have to be in a major metropolitan area. I mean, if you're in New York, then you've got that whole East Coast, you've got that whole area where theater is taking place. I mean, the same is true out on the West Coast. I think if you're not where it's happening, it's that much more difficult to establish yourself. So I think if you graduate and say, I'm going to move to Little Rock, Arkansas, perfectly lovely town, and they've probably got, I don't know, let's say half a dozen theater companies there, maybe an opera company and a couple dance companies reasonable for a town that size, but very limiting if you're trying to break into the market. So would I rather be in Little Rock or would I rather be in New York? I would rather be in New York because at the end of the day, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, So I would say, yeah, I think you got to kind of be in in a major metropolitan area. Um, What unions are you in and the pros and cons of being in them. Right now, I'm in no union. Uh, I was in United Scenic Artists for 25 years, maybe. I was in two different IA locals. Uh, I am, don't tell anybody, I'm about to reactivate my union card because I have, I'm prepping a Broadway show, which uh, probably means uh, it was going to open in 2021. Uh, and I, So it's either canceled or because other people need theaters and you, you know, it's hard to find a theater or they'll simply push it back and open it in 2022. I don't know what's going to happen. I think the pros and cons of a union, I, I think the pros are two words, collective bargaining. I, I think a union is a really good thing. Um, I'm a union guy. What can I say? I don't, I don't see a con to being in the union. There's health care, there's retirement, there's collective bargaining. Uh, you're in a room with like-minded people, pro-union all the way. All right. So wrapping this up, what is your financial goal for this year? Honestly, uh, to, inf- to, to increase my investments by $100,000. Fantastic. If I hit $75,000, i will be happy, but I'd like to push it to $100,000. Okay. So we're, we're in May. So we're almost halfway through the year. Do you have half of $75,000 or half of $100,000 yet? Not looking good. <laughs> I've got about, about $40,000 so far. Okay. All right. That's not, that's not bad. Um, what is your personal goal for the year? Just to be happy. I know. I mean, I just, I mean, I really just want to be, mostly I just want to be happy. You know, that's want my family to be taken care of, want my daughter to get off to college, to grad school. Um, you know, n- not a lot of heavy mes- metaphysical things there. If money was not an issue, what would you do in the world? <laughs> if I won the lottery, I would do two things, honestly give as much money away as I could uh, for the homeless so the IRS didn't get it. I would move to Montana or Utah. I would do those two things. I would I would invest in the homeless and I would invest in Montana and Utah. That's interesting. Unique. Never had that answer before. <laughs> <laughs> Be out there with prairie dogs and mountain lions and grizzly bears. No, I think that's I think that's the retirement strategy is to move in into the the last little bits of the West. That's fantastic. I love it. What financial advice would you give yourself when you started out or would you give somebody that's starting out right now? Uh, I would, I would have told my 18 year old self had they been around to go see Fidelity or Vanguard or you pick, you pick the brokerage firm, you know, get that money magazine out. Uh, Just go get some advice. I mean, I think that most people are afraid to talk to anyone. 
they think they're going to go there, and if they don't have tons and tons of money, they're not going to want to talk to you, or you have no business being there. Go get the information from the source and find out how you can start planning for the future. I mean, you remember college. Uh, Grad school is three short years, and, and it's really short. And all of a sudden, you know, you're out of grad school, and it seems like forever, but 30, 35 years later, retirement is right there. So it's been a short, short life, and it's been a good ride along the way, but now you're going, hmm, what can I do? Find out about that. Uh, you know, open a Roth. Uh, you know, again, where we started, 500 bucks, 50 a month, stop with the credit cards, you know, think, think before you pull the trigger on that new purchase. What separates those that have had a successful career uh, in the arts or in teaching the arts uh, versus those that stop or never try to do it? When you're starting out, you need to join a tribe. And I think you need to find your tribe. That could be an off-off Broadway theater house in which they're doing work that you are tremendously interested in. It can be a dance company. It can be down at the bar with a band. But you need to find some people who are interested. You're all collectively interested in it. The first tribe that comes to mind for me is Wingspace. You've, you've, got, you've got a collective of very interesting people who work loosely together and do interesting things. Get yourself a tribe. The other thing you need is you, you've got to be stubborn. You have got to be stubborn and you've got to be shameless. Uh, Steve Shelley has good advice about this. And he says it's about being social. You find the local watering hole in New York where those designers and those electricians and those assistants are hanging out. You go to where things are happening. I mean, now you join a webinar. You start becoming visible. You go to SETC and you sit on a panel. You go to LDI. You get involved with USITT. You you have to promote your... I mean, as surely as that man who walks down the street here in Texas at least, with a business card in his hand and knocks on your door and says, I want to mow your lawn, and he visits every house on the street, you have to do the same thing. You have to visit every theater, every production company. You have to talk to every production manager. Your job is setting aside a few hours every day to getting a job. All right, that's great advice. You have given so much good advice on this podcast. Okay, final question. Where can people find out more about you? Well, um, they can visit if they're interested in school, the Meadows School of the Arts at SMU, our website, and just click on theater and find me there. Or you can just go to my website, which is uh, stephenwoods.org. Okay, well, Steve Woods, thank you so much. It was great to have you. It's so good seeing you again. And I, I, hope, I, hope, I hope you have that Broadway show sooner than later. Me too. <laughs> That was our interview with Steve Woods. My takeaways were, focus on money. It isn't complicated. You just need to do it. Set aside money regularly and increase it every year. With the money you set aside, put it in an S&P index fund if you're in the USA. If outside the USA, put it in a global stock ETF. Save three to four months of savings in a rainy day fund. And my silly takeaway is that I'm not the only artist who subscribed to Money Magazine. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. 
Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.